So my dad came down and opened the door, the front door, and there was this colonel and other military officers who greeted him and said they were quote-unquote inviting him to the military camp. Sagot naman ng dad ko ay, is this an invitation I can refuse? And the colonel said, I'm sorry sir, but you have to come with us. And that was the last time I saw him as a free man for the next two years. Hello everyone, my name is Erwin. And I'm Mariah. In this show, we invite people to talk about their stories, experiences, lessons, and their small sparks of light during the darkest days in Philippine history. This special limited series is powered by Podmetrics and Podcast Network Asia. For this episode, we'll be sitting down with our favorite woke lolo. He earned a degree in philosophy and studied Bachelor of Law in the UP College of Law. Then he graduated Juris Doctor Magna Cum Laude in 1986 from the Northern Illinois University. A lawyer, educator, and human rights advocate, our woke lolo, Attorney Chel Diokno. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi, hi Chel. Hello. Hi to everyone. Wedding woke tito na lang. <laughs> <laughs> Because I don't think we're too far from age, really. Not that far, Chell. So, self-incriminating if I say woke lolo. Eh. Okay, anyway, we go straight to the main question we ask every guest. is What do you remember about September 21, 1972? Yes, I have very distinct memories. But I'm not sure if it's September 21 or September 22. Parang pagkaalala ko ay September 22, pinatupad talaga yung martial law. I remember staying up. I was supposed to be asleep already, but I was 11 years old at that time. But um, my sisters and brothers had friends over. Hmm. So I was just tagging along with them in, in the house, listening to them, making nakakwentuhan. Hmm. And one of them, one of my sisters, Barkada, said, Alis muna ako, bibili ako ng Yossi. But before he could... Within less than a minute, he came back and his face was really different. Parang namumusla siya. And he said, Marami sundalo sa labas. So we looked out the uh, on the front of our house and we saw a lot of soldiers. I went up to my parents' bedroom with my sister. I think it was my dad. And we knocked on their door. Apparently, my mom, who was then in their uh, bathroom, had heard a lot of cars arriving and doors slamming. Mm. So she looked out the window and also saw the, the men. They were armed with long arms and all that. So my dad came down and opened the door, the front door, and there was this colonel and other military officers who greeted him and said they were, quote-unquote, inviting him to the military camp. Sagot naman ng dad ko ay, is this an invitation I can refuse? And the colonel said, I'm sorry, sir, but you have to come with us. Mm. And that was the last time I saw him as a free man for the next two years. It oh. was uh, really, talagang bumaliktad yung mundo namin. He was a senator at that time. Oh. He was um, a respected lawyer. Oh. And we never thought ever, I mean, ako, I was an 11-year-old boy, oh. that something like that would happen to him. Attorney Chell's father, Senator Jose Diocno, was never charged with a single crime. He spent two years at the maximum security compound of Fort Bonifacio and he endured long periods of solitary confinement at Fort Magsaysay in Laur, Navaysia. Why was he arrested? We were never told any reason. There was no case ever filed against him. So walang warrant of arrest, walang criminal case. 
wala man lang paliwanag sa amin kung bakit uh, siya kinulong. Up to now, we have never had a single word from that dictatorship explaining to us why my father was put in jail. Can go to go back to that night, either September 2022. So, ano, your father was taken away right there and then? Yeah, well, he asked for a few minutes to put a bag of clothes together. They allowed oh. him naman. And, and then he came back and, and he left the house. I mean, they boarded him in a military car. And that's the last time we saw him as a free man for the next two years. Do you remember how you felt? Yeah, I was. We were all in shock. I, I didn't know how to feel. I recall... Uh, my mom, next thing I recall is my mom waking me up. I was on the floor near the front door entrance and waking me up and telling me, dress up, we're going to try to visit your dad. So we got into our cars. We went to Fort Bonifacio. We were not allowed inside the fort. We were waiting outside. I think if I recall, there were families of other known um, opposition who were also there who also arrived. And we were waiting for our arrested relatives to come by, hoping to visit them. We just got a glimpse of them. They were in one, para siyang military bus ba? Mm-hmm. Yung mga nahuli na mga opposition politicians okay. were all in that bus. And nakakawain lang sila sa amin. And then, yun lang, hindi namin sila nadalaw nung araw na yan. I, did your, how did your mom explain it to the family? Or did she try? Or how... Well, by then, we all knew that martial law had been declared. Hmm. And by then, it was clear to us that uh, it was the Marcoses who had ordered him arrested. Hmm. Even if I was only 11 years old at the time, you know, the, the, the milieu then was that there was a lot of unrest. Naman talaga. There were oh. lots of uh, demonstrations almost on a daily basis. You would see it on TV. Marcos was uh, really being subjected to a lot of heavy criticism from different uh, sectors of society. And I guess that was his way of um, making sure he would maintain power. Because second uh-huh. term, na niya yun eh. he would not uh-huh. have been able to continue as president without uh-huh. declaring martial law. Uh-huh. What was it like growing up at the time during <laughs> martial law? Um, the young people today would not like it because bawal um, lahat. You could not uh, criticize the government. If you did, people, um, the cops, the soldiers would pick you up and who knows what would happen to you. You could not gather together outside publicly. If you were seen, if you were more than more three or four or five people, they would disperse you. I, there were no student councils. Uh, they removed the right to strike of uh, workers. Uh, you could not protest. They padlocked all the news media. They took over ABS-CBN, closed down the other media outlets, except those that were friendly to the Marcoses. They padlocked Congress. They controlled the news. They had this Ministry of Information that censored everything. So before any news could be circulated, it had to be approved by that ministry. And um, all the basic rights and freedoms we now enjoy for example, the right to liberty, even the right to privacy of our homes was not respected at that time. Uh, thousands of people were arrested and detained, like my dad. Many people were, the houses of many people were entered without any legal basis because Marcos took on all the powers of government. 
He was the president. He also took on the power to legislate. Kaya may mga presidential decree. And then he had the power to arrest. He had, uh, there were three kinds of, three versions of that during martial law. The first was known as an aso. Hindi yan hayop ha. Arrest, search, and seizure order. Then came PCO, Presidential Commitment Order. Then PDA, Preventive Detention Action. These were all essentially presidential or executive warrants. Hmm. Pero there was like a may curfew, diba, nung time niyon? I remember, yeah. I w- I've been told there was a siren to, to say that you had to go home. Is that true? Yeah. Uh, they had curfew from 12 to 4, if I remember right. They might have changed the times throughout the dictatorship. Oh. And if you were caught, what I was told was they would shave you, shave your head if you're a guy, and then make you work cutting grass or doing something like that for the next day. More or less, ganun daw yun nangyayari. So what would happen if ever we would, you know, I was in high school at that time, so minsan meron pa rin mga party-party. Mm-hmm. We would start early and all leave by 10, 30, 11 p.m. So you had to get home before 12. Did you share like a few stories from the, yung, did your dad ever really tell you what was it like to be in prison at that time, his experience? Yeah. Well, he did uh, talk about it on several occasions and, and even publicly. What was the, the toughest ordeal for him was when he was taken out. He, he was mostly, most of the time, he was detained at the maximum security unit of um, the Armed Forces of the Philippines in Fort Bonifacio. But there was a time when one evening they took him out of his cell, uh, blindfolded him, put him into a helicopter together with Nino Aquino, who was also blindfolded. They were both handcuffed to the helicopter and then brought to a place. They weren't told where they were brought to. They were each put in a separate cell. He calls it, he called it a Bartolina. She's a parang incomunicado, tiny cell. And the way he described it, it was a boarded up small room with uh, windows that were all blocked out and a light switch that was not inside the room but outside and it was um, middle of summer so it was really really hot at that time and they were kept in solitary confinement for i think over a month if i remember right he lost um, i don't know 20 25 pounds something like that when because mm-hmm. of, of that there was no physical torture um that was inflicted, but it was more psychological torture. They weren't allowed to speak to anyone. They were not told where they were. They were essentially had to live in that tiny room, each of them, uh, for that whole amount of time. It was also a a torture for us because I I remember my mom waking me up one morning when when that had happened and telling me to come down with her because... There was a military truck and all of my dad's belongings. Yung lahat ng dinala namin sa cell niya sa Fort Bonifacio had been, was being returned by some soldiers. So my mom approached them and said, what are you doing? Where is my husband? Why are you bringing back these things? And obviously they had been told not to respond. So they did not utter a single word. They just continued putting down his belongings. And when the last item was on the ground, they just got into the truck and, and left. Mm. So it was 
my mom didn't we didn't know whether my dad was still alive or not what had happened to him where he was and ginawa namin she we she what she did is she told me dress up that we'll go see a lawyer mm. and visited attorney Lorenzo Tanyada the, the grandfather of Erin mm. he filed a petition for habeas corpus and eventually we were given permission to visit mm. but that is in itself was also a wow a very unique experience so no vaisiato diba yeah so but you didn't know that all all we were told is you can visit okay when when we went to the camp the fort bonifacio if i remember right they said um come with us uh, follow that convoy but they didn't tell us where we were going so kala namin malapit lang we go through edsa which was then highway 54 we go to Enlex, which was then North Diversion Road. Mm. Go into that road, go through hours and hours of traveling. We end up in Nueva Ecija, in Fort Magsaysay. And by that time, halos gabi na yun eh. And my, there was a military official who met, met us, both families, the Aquino family and the Diokno family. We were in separate cars. And then he, when we got there, he told us, okay, you can, told my mom, you can visit, but you only have 30 minutes each. Uh-huh. And when we got there to see him, um, we weren't even allowed to have physical contact. We couldn't touch him. There were two layers of barbed wire in between us. And the, I remember the first thing we noticed, and my mom immediately said to him, why are you holding your back? And then he said, did they hurt you? And he said, well, no, they didn't hurt me physically, but it was so hot in the Bartolina that I was sweating constantly. And if I let go of my pants, that's how much weight he had lost in at that time. <laughs> Coming from growing up with these experiences, I can really, I mean, parang it sort of tells where you're coming from with what you're doing now in your career, what you've done with FLAG. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how did these experiences sort of compel you to do what you do now, to advocate for human rights? And well, They really shaped me in my life. Uh, mm-hmm. when, when my dad was released from detention in 1974, he really turned his back on politics and just began handling cases. That's when he set up FLAG and began taking on cases, uh, human rights cases. Mm. At that time, I was 13 years old and I was already determined to be a lawyer. So whenever he would dress up for court, if I was home, I would immediately ask him, can I go with you? And I would wear a polo barong and carry his bag proudly. I even was allowed on several occasions to sit at the council's table in the military commissions. But I... I learned so much from him and from the other lawyers kasi yung mga abogado na mga akusado nun, these were some of the best, if not the best, trial lawyers in the country. And they were ibang klase ang mga abogado noon. Uh, that really made me more determined to become a lawyer like him. And as I, uh, every summer, I would clerk in his law office, which was in our house, so it was convenient. I would wake up, go after breakfast, report to him, and he would give me 
assignments. I remember one funny experience I had. He said, go to the Manila City Jail. Look for this detainee and do something and get some document. I had been to a lot of, well, not a lot, but I had been to political detention centers, mga political prisons, but never to a common jail. So I, I just took a public ride. Nawala pa nga ako. Eventually, I found my way to Manila City Jail. And I remember entering and the jail guard, you know, tatatakan ka eh. They, they stamp you. And he said, boy, pag mawala yung tatak mo na yan, di ka na makakalabas dito, says to me. And so every five minutes, I'm looking at summer and I'm looking at my arm. <laughs> nawawala na yata. <laughs> oh, oh. At, uh, foolproof. Then after that, he would, you uh, know, my dad would um, give me, he would make me read cases, make me read case files. We would discuss it. If he would prepare witnesses, he would call me because he saw that I was really interested in, in learning the ropes. Yeah. Uh, so that's where my legal education began with him years before I even entered law school. If your dad turned away from politics, when did you decide that you wanted to go into it? <laughs> I think our trajectories have been the very opposite <laughs> in that respect. <laughs> because he was a senator from 1965, if I remember right, or 1963, until martial law was declared in 1972. And then he became a human rights lawyer. Ako naman, I became a human rights lawyer as soon as I was a lawyer. And I never ever wanted to enter politics until like five years ago. Chel Diokno serves as the chairman of the Free Legal Assistance Group, or FLAG, and the founding dean of the De La Salle University College of Law. Aside from graduating Juris Doctor Magda Cum Laude in the U.S., he also received an American Jurisprudence Award for excellence in the study of contract. It was not even within my... Um, my universe to be, and to run for any public office. Because to me, I mean, I was content being a lawyer, a human rights lawyer and an educator. But when this administration came around and the same thing, you know, it's I, that gut feeling when you have no freedom in your country is like no other gut feeling in the world. I will tell you that. I felt that for... 13, 14 years I felt that during the Marcos period. And I thought I would never ever experience that gut feeling again. It's, it's so, in, it's indescribable. It's, it's like all the fear and the frustration and anger all rolled into one. That you're so powerless against this behemoth of a dictatorship. And when, when 2016 came around and People were being killed. Hundreds of people were being killed on a daily basis. That exact same feeling came back to me. And I said, I cannot, I cannot, I cannot accept this. I I think I was one of the first to ever post something about it. You can probably find that post somewhere on Facebook Mm. where I talked about how um, it how all these killings were just, uh, you know, really beyond any kind of, um, that there was no way that I would accept it. Yeah. But, and that's when I started, I, I, at that time, wala pa rin akong 
thoughts to enter politics. I just wanted to bring out the truth. So I began to speak out publicly, even when people were telling me it was super dangerous to do so. And my initially, my, my talks were very simple. You really want to solve the drug problem? You really want to solve the problems that you're complaining about? Then fix the justice system. Shortcuts just aren't going to work. Mm. That's how it all started. And then as I, when 2019 came around, or 2018, before the elections in 2019, you know, we all complain about how politicians are and how terrible it is the way our government's being run. But then Sabiko, what, mm. what business do I have complaining if, if I'm not going to stick my neck out myself? I always say that there should be other people who should run for office. Eh, kung wala namang ibang may gustong tumakbo, eh. O sige na lang. I mean, let's try. And, and I said, I'll, at least I'll offer, I can offer myself as an alternative. Mm. And someone has to stand up to to what's happening. And that's how it all began. Ako, well, pag lagi nga sinasabi, never forget, never again. It's a martial law, di ba? And then, but, you're one of the you're one of the people who've experienced firsthand the brutality of during martial law, and then that's what the recognition that you had when you had that feeling in 2016. So, what went wrong? <laughs> now that you have a vantage point much longer, what went wrong? Like I said we should have never gone back here. One of the like one of the effects of martial law that was never really discussed much was what they did to the justice system and how they poisoned it. Um, just a week after martial law was declared, Marcos issued letter of instruction number 11, which said that everyone in government must submit letters of resignation, which he could accept at any time, including judges. So that immediately removed the independence of the judge because the judges knew if I make a ruling against the dictatorship, bukas na bukas wala na ako sa judiciary. Four months later, he issued, he changed the constitution and put up the 1973 constitution. One of the transitory provisions in that constitution was st stated that all members of the judiciary up to the Supreme Court continue in office until the age of 70 years old, unless, unless removed by Marcos by decree. So with the stroke of a pen, he could remove any single justice or judge. And that gave him ultimate control over the judiciary. But imagine the effect on the legal profession. You're a lawyer, you're, you want to get the best clients and to make money. You know that if you want to win cases, you have to be close to the powers that be. So there were some enterprising lawyers at that time who began to use their connections to really get close to the Marcoses. And the judges uh, knew it. So if those lawyers appear in court, the judge knows if I make this guy lose, then I might not have a job tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Now, those, those lawyers establish networks of corruption that still operate today. And they created a different breed of lawyers. Tagaayos ng kaso. That still thrive today. So... Those, they, because of that, they managed to influence and not just influence, but taint and poison 
the whole justice system, even the, the thing is after EDSA, that was never addressed. We address our economy, we got back on our feet, put the back on democracy, but we never addressed what happened to the justice system. Yes, there were attempts, okay. Um, in the early part of, of uh, President Cory Aquino's term, she was able to boot out a lot of judges. Pero yung networks na yon mm. outlived her administration. And yeah. that's also why the, the, the Marcoses, the cases against them, many of them have not uh, even, number one, are still pending sa tagal ng panahon. Number two, um, some of them have not prospered because uh-huh. the records got lost, the witnesses uh-huh. didn't testify, or for uh, so many other reasons. Uh-huh. And so when you talk about Hawaii, how, how did we end up here again today? Especially when you talk about the lack of accountability. Siyempre, ang susi is having a justice system that works. Ang susi is having an independent judiciary. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, what did you say, um, neutralized by the dictatorship. And it ne- all, although we have an independent judiciary, more or less, before at least before 2016, yung systemic ailments ng justice system were never addressed. Oh, my attorney, Chell. I mean, I may not have been alive during martial law. I may not have experienced it firsthand. But we're still reeling from the after effects today. And I can relate to this feeling of doom you have. There, I didn't have to live through martial law to see how the threat of a dictatorship was looming. And even how important human rights are, you know? I wouldn't describe it as a feeling of doom. Mm. It's a feeling of extreme anger that... um, not just it's not even anger it's a feeling of this just isn't right and somebody has got to do something about it and if no one else wants to do something about it then i have to do something about it and what can the youth do and i mean like what's something immediate that the youth could do right now or in the coming months well number one um Speak the truth to power at every opportunity you have. Mm. Number two, get involved in the coming elections. Yeah. The coming elections is not just going to be about political personalities. It's going to be about your future. And if you don't get involved, you are in effect surrendering your future to leaders whom you don't know or aren't sure really care for the people and care for the country. So if you want to have a future and get involved and choose the right candidates, support them, mm. and uh, get other people involved as well. That's the golden opportunity because, you know, our, our voting population is getting younger and younger. Mm. In, in 2019, they, they, those who could vote between the ages of 18 to 39 were roughly 33 million. In 2022, that number is going to go up to 40 million, 40. So when if they all get registered and if they all vote, they could really decide the outcome of the elections. Mm. Kaya ang panawagan ko sa mga kabataan, take advantage of this opportunity. Yung iba sa inyo, nagre-reklamo kayo sa akin, hindi nakikinig sa inyo mga thunders. 
this is your best way to express yourself and they have no choice but to listen to you because your vote is your voice and you want to be heard then get involved and vote wisely attorney chel kasi you have a lot of experience in frustration being a human rights lawyer and then now a political candidate for the opposition what do you advise young people or anyone when what they want they fought so valiantly for it and they believed in it and kala nila mangyayari and then hindi nangyari how do you continue do you continue where do you find the strength Uh, it's in our DNA. You look at our history, and it, our history, my dad once said that the history of the Philippines can be described as a continuous and continuing struggle to build a just and humane society. And we've been fighting for that ever since, for centuries. And we've never given up. Because to me, it's already built into, it's hardwired into our, our, our brain and in, in our hearts. From the time, not just of Rizal, but even those who fought the Spanish colonial masters before him, in the centuries before him, nandun na yun eh. And if you look at our history, it's really been young people who have been at the forefront of that movement. Rizal oh. was what, 23 years old when he wrote No Limit Angere. Raha Sulaiman, one of the earliest to fight, was 17. Mm. Uh, Francisco Dagoy of Bohol was 20 years old. And, and throughout our history, during the Japanese occupation, yung ibang naging guerrilla, di ba? ROTC lang ang alam nila sa digmaan. Naging tunay na sundalo. These were young people. Yeah. Marcos dictatorship, we lost almost an entire generation of the best and brightest young people who fought for us and eventually succeeded in ousting that dictator. Kaya ako, you want to, to get energy, you will look at our history and you will realize that it's in every one of us. Thank you. Thank you, Attorney Chell, for that. Thank you for Thank guesting you. on our podcast. Do you have any more questions, Mariah? No, I'm just happy to hear from our woke Tito. <laughs> Salamat, Chell. Ah. Sure, sure. Thank, thank you, Erwin, so and thank you, Mariah. Okay. Sige. We know that your time is very limited, so yeah, at least we were able to... Yeah, that was really inspiring. Even even I know you, parang di ko pa narinig yung maibang kwento mo. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Podcast 1081, mga kwento martial law. This special limited series is powered by Podmetrics and Podcast Network Asia. Before we close this episode, let us end with a quote from history from Salud Algabre. No uprising fails. Each one is a step in the right direction. Tune into the next episode of Podcast 1081. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. <laughs>